you know, I've always got had a reputation in tournament archery being good in the wind, and part of it's the way I trigger the shot. But also, I go out and shoot in the wind when the wind blows, mm-hmm. and because I know that's going to be a skill set that I need. I need my I need to learn how my bow reacts in the wind. I need to learn how to stabilize the bow to hold best in the wind, and then I need to know I need to get a, a basic spidey sense of what that wind's going to do to my arrow. My philosophy is always be putting yourself in lifelike scenarios and positions that you're going to be faced with in the field and try to think about everything, you know, shooting from around the rock, over the top of things, angles and so on and so forth. Bring on somebody new, like, you know, you're talking to a guy at work or whatever, and you take them out hunting. Chances are that person is not going to be as sick with it as you are. They didn't grow up with it. Chances are he might be that person that, you know, does it for one weekend a year, five days a year, whatever the case may be, takes one tag, but you just created an ally. You just created another voice, another person to advocate for hunting. Is there's this perception, there's this idea of what the hunter is, you know, toothless hillbilly, willy-nilly, running around the back of pickup trucks, drinking beer and shooting at everything. That's what is painted of the hunter. That or we're just this like bloodthirsty, we're shooting things lopping off their head leaving bodies out there and you know that's the trophy hunter you know i just want to stand with my trophy and that has all came about from the anti-hunting they've been systematically for since you and before you and i were babies or born they've been painting this picture what the hunter is and you hit the nail on the head when you started saying we need we need to start talking to people and start changing that perception of what it is that we are people felt like they've lost their voice and i think this is this is good to hear that you, you put something together that people start to feel like maybe they can make a difference because i, I do believe that's the big kicker there they got to feel like they're actually making a difference hey guys i want to start off by thanking you for keeping me on the air since 2004 I'm trying to keep everything fresh and keep bringing you content that is both enjoyable and informational. So if you can help me out by hitting me up on Instagram or Facebook and giving me some suggestions for guests, topics, and questions, I'd really appreciate it. Also, you've heard me say this, but please, 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 please take a few moments to give me a review on iTunes. It's so important to keeping me on the air. So if you want this podcast to stick around, please get on there. Drop me a line. Lastly, go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags. Been the title sponsor of the show for a long time. Use promo code John Stallone to save 20% on everything they offer. All right, let's get into this next episode. Well, hi, John. How you doing? Good, man. Can't (laughs) complain. How you been? Good, good. Just well. Other than, I don't know if you heard the big Botech news, but. Um, you know what? I have been so disconnected from everything. I just heard something about Vista being bought out by Czechoslovakians. But other than that, I. No, didn't. no, that was, that was part of our, our company. So. Okay. The ammo side of Vista, but, um, we'll talk about it later. But anyway, I just wanted to, uh, you know, welcome you on to the new Gold Tip Archery Ops podcast. And, uh, our goal with arch, you know, the audit or the archery ops is to to bring guests in here that people can learn from, you know, people that are experts in their field. And, you know, eventually I want to bring in entertaining guests that are once we get some legs underneath it, you know, that are mm-hmm. people that are experts in their field that people might not even know, you know. Right. There's there's a lot of guys out there that I that I come in contact running shooting staff and through my archery career that are absolute experts in penetration, you know, they're experts in and hunting they have just adventure stories galore that would be very entertaining you know i did one with their you know alan bolin yesterday mm-hmm. um that was pretty interesting i got to know him a little bit better and his what makes him tick you know that's awesome i don't know, I don't know if you and i could pass up 22 doll sheep with a bow could you <sighs> i don't think i'd pass up one doll sheep <laughs> i know it's crazy it's crazy he's that he passed up 22 doll sheep never has never killed one with a bow because he's looking for a booner really oh yeah but if you've ever seen you know me and how itchy my trigger finger is hell i just shot a freaking two and a half year old deer in new york the other last week because i was i just didn't want to i didn't want to not fill a tag yeah it was still fun it was still fun yeah let's just get straight to the point you know i want to i want to learn about and i had never even known this hunt existed kind of like you i I listened to your video the other day and i was like 
kind of like you when you first introduced you, you had no idea it even existed. Mm-hmm. There's this little spot down the Florida mountains in New Mexico that have a, a herd of Ibex, you know, and I had uh, a guy on this podcast uh, a while back that is just a big Ibex hunter. And it was pretty interesting to hear him talk about it, but you know, he does it in Spain and all over the world, but uh, right. But this is kind of a unique thing. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Florida mountains and the, the opportunity as a bow hunter. I know it's less and less as a non-resident now since mm-hmm. they changed the laws, but it's, you know, there are ways through outfitters and stuff to get a tag there, but I've, I've heard it's one of the most challenging. I've had guys like, uh, um, Darren Collins, who is just, you know, a renowned bow hunter. Mm-hmm. Tell me it's the toughest hunt he's ever been on. It is. It, it, well, they used to call it the 2% club. Yeah. Uh, if you got one, um, because it was a hunt that had the highest abandonment rate of any hunt out there. So that means the guys would draw the tag, they'd go out there, they'd put three, four days into it and be like, fuck, shit, <laughs> excuse my <laughs> French, you know, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get away from this thing. This is like, uh, this is, I'm not gonna make this happen. It's, it's, I really want this as yeah. bad as I thought I did. It's I, I physically it. a brutal. Lot of hunts that I feel yeah. that way, actually. <laughs> yeah. I, well, there is, you know, there's the physic, there's a physicality is there on a lot of hunts, you know, especially, you know, you went mountain goat hunting. I'm sure that was a pretty physical hunt. My elk hunt I just finished was probably the most physical hunt I've ever been on. Elk hunting is always physical. Like, I mean, oh. I mean, that, that Pavon uh, unit is brutal. Is it? Okay. Roads on top and everything's 1500 vertical down. Where I've been hunting that it's, might as well all be wilderness because there's no, there's no roads, zero. Like all the roads are down at the bottom and everything you got to hike up. Like every morning you're hiking, unless you spike out there, which I, you know, if you want to get into that, I'll get into, I don't do for some reason. I just, I feel uh, I, I'm, I perform better when I get a better night's sleep and uh, I would rather hike out three, four miles. Really? Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm weird like that. Like, no, I'm not that way at all. Cause I'm, I'm not a morning person. And if no, I got four I hours of sleep, I ain't getting out of bed. Yeah. Well, I, I, doesn't matter where I'm at. I get the same six to seven hours of sleep. Doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, there's so. a, there's something about an elk bugling while you're in your, your sleeping bag that makes you want to get up. <laughs> yeah. 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 But so, so, those are the things that keep me up all night. If I heard yeah. elk bugling, then I wouldn't sleep at all. And yeah. I'd, I'd be good for two days, three days, and then I'd be around. Yeah. Well, you know, so. I hunt, used to hunt Idaho and it was the same way. I would hike back to the camp every day and I was just destroyed. Yeah. You got to be prepared to do the 10 mile, 10 mile days. Oof, those are hard too, boy. Yep. Especially yeah. when there's three or four thousand vertical in them. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's brutal. But um, yeah, I mean, so the the thing about the ibex hunt is it's all cliffs. It's like super nasty. Um, there's snakes in every freaking hole. Like you can't really. You're afraid to put your hand to grab to pull yourself up. You know, you're constantly. And both my hunts. Both my hunts were in October. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's infested and there's Mojave's, you know, down there. So it's, you know, it's not just, Hey, I'm going to get bit by a rattlesnake and, you know, I'm pretty close to denning. I can, Deming, I can run and get, uh, you know, aid, you know, you get bit by a freaking Mojave or if you're not, if you're not 15, 20 minutes from somewhere, you're, you're going to get some serious damage because, you know, they got both venoms. They have both the uh, what is that neurotoxin and the and the hemotoxin. Yeah, on your behind your image on there, it's mm-hmm. kind of fading in and out. What is that? Oh, it's an elk hide. That's an elk hide that's on the uh, here. I'll get rid of that for you if you want to see my my office is a disaster. I just took all my mounts down, and I was filling in holes and repainting stuff. But uh, yeah. Yeah, so I I'm re- that's my Saturday project. My office is yeah, getting see, that's what you're seeing back there. <laughs> ah, that's that don't matter. That's fine. We're good with that. It don't matter. I think they probably would rather have that than all gotcha. that other distraction, but gotcha, gotcha. All right, but, so we'll uh, go with that. You're way too high tech to put in all that background, <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, that that's crazy. That many snakes. I'm not, I hate snakes, so do I, man. And I, you know, I live in Arizona, so I'm used to dealing with snakes, but it's brute, like 
brutal to have to think about like all that and then everything is just steep the wind is ridiculous one one second it's going this way you take two steps forward it's going the other way like you never know what's what's up and and the animals themselves are honestly they're super they're just supernatural if you can take all the best senses from all the animals that you've hunted you know so you hunt antelope you know antelope have the greatest eyesight okay you hunt bears bears got the greatest sense of smell you hunt a coos deer they're super super cagey you know like they have this sixth sense about you know all these things and you just throw it all into one and you make an ibex which is like spider-man it can climb i mean if you if you did watch that video you'll see them like they're literally they need about i think from what i understand from my biologist i talked to they need about five percent grade so if straight up and down zero, they need 5%. So they can climb and an 85% or an 85 degree. Or 95 degree. <laughs> well, 90 is this. Well, oh, yeah, yes, yes, yes. So okay. 85 degree. They can climb an 85? Oh. It's, it's stupid. Like, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That's and, crazy. I, you know, I, I think you were telling me, you, I don't know if you or somebody else was telling me about a shot they tried to make at one straight down and the wind blew the arrow into the cliff. That was me. That was me. That was on my 2016 hunt. Not only do you have left and right wind, you have yep. in and out wind. <laughs> I made that shot twice thinking that I made a mistake, you know, that yeah. I picked the wrong pin. I shot. It was the craziest thing. So there's a billy underneath me standing on this little pinnacle rock and he's strumming straight down below me. And the f- wind was blowing in my face so hard, probably. Uh, I don't know if I had a guess, probably 30 miles an hour. You know, I drew back and my rangefinder gave me, uh, I think it was 40 yards or something at the time, gave me 40 yards with, you know, with the cut and everything. Also, I'm like, oh, phew, slam dunk, 40 yards. I'm going to drill this guy. I shot and the arrow hit right at, right at its feet, you know, perfect left to right, just like right where it was supposed to be, but hit the rock that it was standing on. Sparks went flying. That billy jumps off, and I'm thinking to myself, shit, there goes my opportunity, you know, because you don't get a lot. Five seconds later, another billy jumps up on the same rock, and I'm like, all right, well, I range again. I'm like, 40, okay, I must have picked the wrong pin. And even then, I actually added like an inch on my shot placement, and again, I hit low. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? And then it just dawned on me lately. I'm like, the wind's, the arrow's going like this. The wind's hitting the whole time, pushing it back yeah. To oh, yeah. down, you know, like there's no, mm-hmm. you know, of course. I Tricky. That's, that's, I don't even know what you would do other than just try to calculate, you know, what a 30 mile cross went. I think miles. I, I would have had to add like 10 yards. I mean, based on where both the arrows hit. Yeah. It'd you probably know. about depending on your arrow weight and stuff, you know, something like that, you know, a hunt like that, you know, you'd probably want to go and you knew you were dealing with those conditions. You'd want to shoot like a Pierce tour. Mm-hmm. You'd want to shoot it heavy and you want to shoot it fast as you could, you know, Yeah. just to kind of, and really small veins with like a thorn broadhead. That would probably be the absolute best targeted projectile in that situation. And you'd still have issues. Yeah. I, I shot on that shot in that particular hunt so the hunt before that i was shooting the pro hunters mm-hmm. and i was i shot my helium that was in 2015 this one yeah. the videos on in 2016 when this happened i was shooting i had just switched to the pierce platinums and i was shooting a 300 spine i think my total grain weight on the whole thing because i was just matching i mean my my last the hunt prior to year before I ended up making a 75 yard shot with about the same weight, about 429 total weight, you know, I'm a 29 inch draw. So this was about the same 429. And I was sure. shooting uh Schwacker at the time with the two inch. And, um, yeah, man, I, I had, I mean, I had a complete pass through at that 75 yard shot and I just happened to get it where I was in a Canyon and there wasn't, you know, it was windy, but it wasn't like stupid windy and I'm used to wind. I go to South Dakota every year. I mean, I in South Dakota, if it's not blowing 15, it's blowing 30. So it's like, you know, yeah. One of the best shots I ever made was over in Nebraska. 
you know, in the wind. And and I, I tell people today, you know, I've always got had a reputation of, in tournament archery being good in the wind. And mm-hmm. part of it's the way I trigger the shot, but also is I go out and shoot in the wind when the wind blows. Mm-hmm. And Same here. because I know that's going to be a skill set that I need, I need my, I need to learn how to, my bow reacts in the wind. I need to learn how to stabilize the bow to hold best in the wind. Mm-hmm. And then I need to know, I need to get a, a basic spidey sense of what that wind's going to do to my arrow. And 100%. You know, that year I was shooting a 515 grain arrow at 318 foot a second. Yeah. I mean, well, that's, it was that's moving. amazing in the wind. <laughs> but that was 80 pounds. And those yeah. days are, you yeah. know, I don't try to go above 75 anymore. But I don't shoot over 70 anymore. Hell, I, I'm actually considering because the last, my next trip is, is South Dakota. And it's so damn cold there. And I'm wearing so much crap that. Yeah. I've had it now three times where I couldn't come to full draw because I was sitting there freezing my ass off and then finally got a, I finally got a, you know, an opportunity because you, you know, you hike, you bust your ass again to place and you're sweating your freaking nuts off. And then you get, you get into position and you got to wait, you got to wait. It might be an hour, you know, until the, the animals move into the right places and you can make the shot. and And, you know, by that time you're cold and. You know, you go to draw back and you're like, oh, why can't I get this damn thing back? And you're like, oh, you know, I got all this crap on and I'm cold. And and uh, so I might actually bring my my turkey bow with my 60-pound bow with me and uh, shoot that because I don't want to run into that. Last year, I had that problem. I had a beautiful buck. Like, it was the last last morning and I was sitting there in a heater bodysuit. I went and snuck up into this because I kept seeing them early in the morning passing through this windbreak. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, let me let me go sit there. You know, but I'm not gonna do the spot stock game because obviously the snow was crunchy, it wasn't like ideal. So I'm like, I'm gonna go sit there. I put a heater bodysuit on. I thought I'd be all right, still froze my really butt off. Yeah. I got well, one of them in a box up here just waiting for the first time I can use it. <laughs> yeah. They're so I I, I, I you know, and as I've gotten older, <laughs> the cold bothers me more, you know. Yeah. I, I don't, and that I'm I don't carry as much fat on me, I guess, I think maybe. But he came out 30 yards, read the playbook. He was raking a tree, you know, like 20 yards to my right. And then he steps out and I'm like, okay, here we go. And I went to draw. And I'm like, what? I can draw if I do this, but like a concealed draw, I couldn't do. And by the time, like he turned where he wasn't looking at me, he started walking away. So I did that. And then he, I tried to get him to stop, and he wouldn't stop. And he was too, too quartering away from me to like. I was like, I didn't want to, I didn't want to screw it up and hit him in the hip or something. But so yeah, lessons. You know, it's funny how we always get the lessons on the best bucks. You know, I, I still remember this giant. I don't even know how big he was. Player on the Wasatch front where you got to earn him. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, two thousand vertical and four miles before daylight. Yep. Deal. You know, sometimes that day it was probably a good solid 18 to 24 inches of snow. It was, it was cool. But I got up on this buck and he was, I had him 55 yards just waiting for him to clear. It was about a 160 buck. Mm. And I'm 37 degrees slope. I'm up to my waist in the snow and I'm just waiting for him to clear. And all of a sudden below him, this buck comes out and I'm like, oh crap, the thing's huge. And I, I just eh, stopped him and I just clicked him with the range finder. The range finder said 82 and I'm like, I have this cut chart on my arm and I just, I just went with it and I hit, I shot and I was shooting white arrows and I, and I, I heard it hit and I ran around the point and just saw blood everywhere in the snow. And I'm like, sweet. Right. And I looked over to my right and I saw a deer butt go up under a tree. So my, I was focused hundred percent there because I thought that was him. Well, in retrospect, following him, he was standing under a tree down there. I could have got a second shot on what oh. had happened. My is, Cause I tracked him all over the place. I'd never did see him again. And my buddies went in there the next day and they, they saw him and he had a slice right through the top of his withers. Mm. And that's just another lesson in range finders. Don't cut that kind of slope correctly. And that's another challenge on your, like say an Ibex hunt. People yeah. need to be very, very aware that range finders do not cut slope that precisely. Now there's a new program out that I've been working with and, uh, I really think there's a lot of potential with it. Of mm-hmm. the cut charts are tricky because they're not they're not that fast. But this guy's charts talked him into you know extrapolating it out even by the yard. So if you build like a little flip cheat, you could actually make a little cut chart that's pretty fast. But it's precisioncutarchery.com. Okay. And 
I think the guy really gets it. And I've, I've looked at some of the cuts. I've shot a bunch of men and they seem to be pretty spot on. I mean, that's a very intense, highly precision undertaking because if you're going to go into a terrain like sheep hunting, goat hunting, ibex hunting, you really need to get out and shoot your bow in some extreme slopes. You need to absolutely 100%, 100% take a target with you in sight tapes and make sure you recite in when you get where you're going. I was up elk hunting this year and I live at 4,500 feet. And I, I probably mentioned this on half a dozen of these podcasts, but at 4,500 feet, when I went to 9,500 feet, mm-hmm. I believe I was 10 inches high at 100 yards. Well, that big of a difference from only 5,000 feet? That's crazy. Yeah. Now, part of the reason is, is I'm shooting a gold tip force arrow with uh-huh. four flitch 2.1. So the larger, it's ballistic coefficient, right? Just okay. like a, just like a gun or anything else. The yeah. bigger you shoot an arrow, the bigger the fletchings, the faster that arrow slows down, the more it's going to be affected by air density. So if you take a Pierce arrow in that same scenario, mm-hmm. and there, I was going to shoot actually black label quantums, but I just struggle at my draw length. You know, it's just so hard to keep them stiff enough. Unless I shoot that glue in thorn broadhead and keep the weight down in the front of them. But in a Pierce in that situation, you might be looking at six inches higher instead of, yeah, you know. I don't, I don't know. So like when I, uh, when I, I live here I, in Arizona, I'm at 1500. Okay. I'm actually about 1200. So let, let's say 1500. And for instance, in Utah, where, uh, where I would mule deer hunt, I'm at 10,000 feet. So that's pretty big difference. Yeah. I was about three inches high at, uh, at 80, 80. So I would guess you'd be four or five inches high, maybe, maybe even six at a hundred. Cause it really, that's where it really starts to fall off. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that was two foot a second difference on a sight tape. So if you take a two foot a second different sight tape and you lay it up against it, you know, the other one, mm-hmm. you will see that at 50, there's basically no difference. At 80, you got a tiny bit. At yeah. 100, you got more. At 130, 140, you're going to yeah. have oh, incrementally more. That. And and the faster that arrow is slowing down, the more variation you're going to see. So, you know, who knows? Maybe some of that 10, 12 inches was just margin yeah. of error. I don't know. I shot three arrows yeah. and they all went. Yeah. Well, yeah. All in the top of my, that brown block target. Mm-hmm. And I was but like, this oh. is flat. You're shooting on flat. Not, not no angle. Yeah, very flat. Yeah, yeah, I shoot right on a road. You know, I, yeah, I don't, I'm about as anal as they get. So. Yeah. <laughs> but I have actually have tried that before, and I believe I was using Pierce arrows when I tried it, mm-hmm. or Chaoses, and I actually didn't feel like I noticed as much difference. But there's, you gotta, you gotta shoot a lot of arrows. That's the problem with this cut data is how much of it is that the angle affecting the way you're making the shot, putting your hand in the grip so on and so forth and how much of it is actual the math right Mm -hmm. and you have to you know even in target archery i kind of tend to play to my weaknesses so uphill you tend to have a a uh, tendency to drop your arm because gravity's not helping you downhill you know the bow's kind of just pulling away from you in in a in a parallel plane and you can actually get in around behind your shot. When you get real steep uphill, one of the big problems is to see right here where I is stretched out. When we're here, yeah, you not. can't get around here. You just can't. Right. And so I remember one time I was in a tournament in, in Wales and it was these European pro series. And these guys love to just put a vicious course on. And it was so much fun. And we were standing in this old world war II fort and I was in a, a bunker and then they had a target elevated on a stand so Mm. we're shooting like i don't remember what it was it was like 55 degree slope and it was about 14 or 15 yards is it and i thought i knew everything about sight leveling right Mm -hmm. and my bow was perfectly level and i get up there and i shoot and i hit to the left and i'm like what the freak i mean we're talking 14 yards i mean i hit this far left and i'm like i did it again i'm like Mm. i ran into dave cousins because he was tearing it up and i'm like dave what what's going on here? Do you know? He said, hell, I don't know. I just aimed to the right. (laughs) And so I get to the last target of the day and it's the same thing. It's 20 yards, 40 plus degree uphill. And I just aimed the right side of the dot and smoked him. But the whole way home, this thing's like, it's in my craw. It's like, I was like, what happened? And I was having a conversation with a guy and I can't even remember. And he's like, well, yeah, I just gauged the cables in 
against the this this the side of the scope to know kind of where my torque's at. I'm like, oh crap, that's exactly what it is. And I don't even know where I got this idea from. <laughs> but I was shooting a PSE Dominator at the time, and the Dominator is a shoot through riser, right? So yep. you had a you had a it's an ambidextrous riser. So you right. had mounts for a sight on this side and mounts for a sight on this side. So I took a, a second sight and I come around behind. Uh-huh. And I put it in in my sight window there, and I I, I don't even know where I seen this thing. I don't even know where it came from, but it, I don't even know what it's used for. But it's a bow fishing sight that has two wires like this. Yep. You have any idea what that's what they use it for for bow fishing? I don't understand the premise. Well, it's it's because you're always shooting like this down into the water, so oh. it's very easy for you to you know. Oh, okay. Torque the is that yeah. what it's for? For torque too, huh? Yep. It's a for, it's exactly what it is. Basically, for what I did is I got the idea that I would put my pin between these two lines. And so I modified the side a little bit so I could get the lines far enough apart where they weren't really distracting me. Mm-hmm. And dude, I went to the next tournament in Wales and I beat the dogs, not out of those guys. Cause as soon as I got to the position where I was doing a steep shot and that pin wasn't between those wires, all I did is make myself pull a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. That pin goes over between the two wires. And I mean, I'm right down the pipe. So there is a little bit of logic for a rear sight. Yep style apparatus you know but again it needs to run something like this that runs parallel so that when you track your side up and down it's going right between it so so i got two well for me that's why i still shoot the stupid retina lock site i know it's not a great site like people oh, shut okay, it that's that one that's got the, yeah do I, I have one on my desk here no well, that little yeah it's got a little um torque water. indicator on it right, yeah. right. and I don't I, have that. I, I don't have that problem shooting angles anymore. As long as my I remember, bubble, I re- yeah, I my bubble's right, and my you know, obviously, I got to have the it set up right. But if I have it set up right, I don't have issues shooting up or down because of that. Because I That's just manipulate it to get it. And before that, what I would do is if I was shooting on an angle, and even even flat, this works too. I would just glance up and look at my at my string. And see if it was tracking in the cam yeah. grooves, and if it yeah, wasn't I mean, perfectly straight, then yeah. I knew I was torquing the bow. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, try to run. I still try to run eighteen to twenty pounds of holding weight on my hunting bows because mm-hmm. when you're like you said, you're all bundled up and you're clothed up and you're out of position and your foot's one foot's two foot above the next mm-hmm. one. That's when you're going to torque the bow. And people, you know, I I, I get in conversations. I've work, been working for Gold Tip for here almost what twenty two years. And I remember a guy calling up one time and he wanted a heavier arrow for penetration. And I don't know, we got off on a diatribe about sight leveling and he's, like, ah, I don't need to worry about third axis. I only shoot 30 yards. I said, dude, you just told me you shot a deer in the shoulder and you're worried about it. Maybe that, maybe your bow was off far enough to make you hit the three inches to the right that you smoked him in the shoulder. I mean, mm-hmm. do you ever think about that? And he's like, Hmm. Yeah, never, not really. Um, but, but it's true. In fact, when I was working with Hamsky and we, we, well, we, I kind of, the Hamsky level was kind of my idea. I, 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 mm-hmm. I had the, I have it. the guy at specialty make me one without the pin in it. And I thought, I, cause I knew it had to be done at full draw to get the torque load. And, and I was just, a, wasn't thinking it through. And, uh, I had sold 30 of them things and I brought one into the guys at work and gave one to each one of them. And I was all like excited about this, you know, thing. And it was going to just solve all these problems that I'd had. And Preston Edwards, who, who worked for us at the time, he's like, that ain't going to work. Uh, and I got all buttered. I'm like, what do you mean it ain't going to work? Works perfect. And uh, he's like, no, the bubble in that level is going to torque the same as the one in your sight. And I thought about it for a second and I thought, shit, he's right. Mm-hmm. And so it took me about three days to come up with the pin feature. But uh, I remember that moment looking back once I discovered the pin you know, the pin running parallel to the first axis. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of, I, I don't know if I got that off a of spot hog site because they have a wire, they line the pins up with. So the wire becomes the first axis. So that's what you level off of. Right. So it makes it makes leveling really simple. Although I hate the wire in my site picture. Mm-hmm. Just, it's I distracting. Just, I like it. Yeah, it is. I don't like it a lot. Some guys like it. I didn't, I didn't like it, but uh, I had a Matthew switch back that year. We went to Bowcast at the bird, which is now total archery challenge. Mm-hmm. And they had this doll sheep shot that was like 109 yards off this cliff. And and I kept hitting it clear up in the front neck shoulder area. And I was just like, there's not enough wind here to do that. 
And sure enough, I go back and I check that bow and it's a half a bubble out from static to full draw. So what that means to you guys watching is if I take a bow and I level it in a vice, third axis, you see a lot of guys do this. Right. And then I draw the bow back, it puts a different torque load on it. And depending on how you grip the bow, whether you're pushing inward or outward, you're going to change that bubble's relationship to the plane of motion. So that bubble's got to run perfectly perpendicular to plane of motion or it runs out. And the reason you get a left or a right is you're canting the bubble. So long story short. Mm-hmm. The way I now analyze this is I wasn't seeing near as big a shift in my target bows. Okay. I was seeing that was a Matthews apex days. So you had a really stiff limb. The older guys like Frank Pearson, they probably never experienced this that much because we were shooting 48 inch axle to axle bows with eight inch brace heights. I mean, the cable side might've moved that much. Right. So they were getting no shift from static to full draw. So a static third axis measurement, was not really showing up downrange, so they never really caught on to the fact. But once you get high let off hunting bows, where you've got ability to torque it, and people that are inexperienced, especially, mm-hmm. this is another advocate for a square grip, okay? A flat back square grip. Rounded grips, thin rounded grips rotate faster. And I'll give you another test. We ran a, a video one time where we were just showing the difference in carbon arrows and basically showing the memory and how they affected accuracy downrange. And so I took a shooting machine and I shot one arrow three times before I started any test. So I picked this Matthews LX up. It had that old Matthews rounded grip on it. That was my favorite bow. <laughs> the grip sucked. I, I, you know what? It, it, it's all about what you got used to, you know, and oh, I shot sure, that but, bow but, for but a hear, very long time. Out. So we put this, this bow in the shooting machine and I shoot the same arrow three times that arrow strung horizontally that far. Oh, yeah. 10 inches. Mm-hmm. I took the grip off. I put, a, I believe, a shrewd True. flat grip on it, retuned it in the shooting machine, and that thing went inside out in a dime. If yep. that's not the proof that the, the load transfer in the bow is controlled by the grip, I don't know what is. Oh, 100%. That's, so, matter of fact, that was the bow that I learned that trick I learned that trick for the uh, looking at, for the cam. Yeah, matter yeah. of fact, it, it, um, I don't know if you know him or not, but Randy, who owns Archery Headquarters in in Chandler, but he also is the inventor of the Easy Fletch, and on a number of different things. I think he's got some programs out there and stuff that he invented. But um, he's the one that told me about that because he's like, you see this little wear on your on your wood grip right here. That means that. You're consistently throwing this torque into it. And he's like, you know. So yeah. I started looking up. I started looking up and I and eventually I trained my body not to do what I was doing. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I don't remember when it was, but then, you know, that retinal oxide came out. The first one was horrendous, but I was actually tree stand hunting, which I find that you tend to torque the bow way more when you're in a tree stand than when you're on ground just because of the situation and the angles and whatever i had this buck come running underneath me chasing this doe and i'm waiting for him to stop and i was at full draw and i wasn't quite used to that whole looking at the retina lock thing yet in in a hunting situation yeah practice Uh you know you you can slow down when you're in a hunting situation everything's sped up so I just happened to look up at it and I'm like, I am torquing the shit out of this bow right now. I am torquing so much yeah. that I'm going to miss my mark. And he's only 19 yards. I'm going to miss by, you know, a large margin. And I just eased up my grip and I brought the, the you know, the retina lock back in sight. And I anchored, I shot and he went 20 yards and died. And I was like, here we perfect. go. You know, perfect. But had I not had that, I probably would have took that shot because I was thinking to myself, oh, 19 yards, he's done, right? But right. I was I was really torquing the heck out of that bow. Like, well, that's that just goes to the importance of really practicing and hunting like conditions with your hunting bow. And that's kind of 100%. tied into the kind of the second question I was going to ask you is how you prepare, you know, how do you prepare for the hunting season? I mean, how do you prepare for it physically? How do you prepare for it mentally? Everybody's a little different. I think you're kind of diehard at this. I, uh, I am. Well, my my background in college, my my first degree, uh, was exercise physiology and, oh, okay. and corporate fitness and wellness. So, um, I used to be the strength and conditioning coach, and I used to do like sports specific training with the soccer players and the tennis players at Grand Canyon University. So, since 1998, when I graduated. 
I changed my mentality. I had, I always had the mentality of being physically fit and hunting and that it helped and so on and so forth, but I never looked at it through. This is a sport that needs sport specific training. If I was training for the Olympics and I view every hunt as a, you know, as I'm going to the Olympics, if I was training for that, what would I be doing? So I started putting myself into what we said a couple of times already on this podcast, lifelike scenarios, basically. You know, you're not, when you go hunting, you're not going to be standing in front of a, a, a block target at 40 yards with a dot in the center on flat ground and a perfect archer's tee. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll count through all these steps. Yeah. (laughs) You're not everything. Like I said earlier, it's everything sped up and the terrain is different. The angles are different. You're dealing with so many, you might be on your knees, you might be on your butt and you might be sliding around a bush. You might have to come a full draw and then step up. So I literally started incorporating every one of these things that I think that I would be faced with. And that's how my practice is. Now, am I going to be like, even when I go archery or excuse me, 3d archery practice, you know, I go shoot a, a range or whatever. I don't shoot those animals. I shoot them like I'm trying to kill them. I don't right. shoot them for, I'm trying to shoot a 12 ring because those, you know, those targets aren't where they're supposed to be. And more so that, so my brain doesn't, go, Hey, I want to shoot it here. Oh no, wait, no, I really want to shoot it here when I'm in, when I'm faced with the situation. And I even, so that's how I started bow hunting coyotes. I was like, what's a perfect way for me to get constant year round, you know, and it was fast. It's like a drive-by shooting, you know, coyotes come flying in and they only give you, you know, a second or two to Get, you a know, shot off, get a yeah. shot off. Yeah, and I, I think you guys have plenty. I thought I was going to die by coyote over in four A one year. I was like, oh, there, Lord, there is, every- there is. Yeah, I've spoken to a couple of people over here, and they they've done flyovers and killed like twenty thousand. It doesn't even like make a dent. So, but yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, so my my philosophy is always be putting yourself in lifelike scenarios and positions that you're gonna be faced with in the field and try to think about everything, you know, shooting from around the rock, over the top of things, angles and so on and so forth. So we were talking about the Ibex hunt, that 2015 hunt, I was so determined that I was going to get one. This is my first, I had gone nine years of applying and I hadn't, you know, and I, I drew it on the 10th year. I was like, nobody's ever done this with a bow on film. I'm going to do it. Okay, so I was the first guy to do it on film with a bow. And I wanted to get a, a nice representation of it. And I was just hell-bent. I'm like, so I'm going to do everything possible. I was shooting because everybody I talked to was like, oh, man, the wind is crazy, the the angles. I was going up six floors in parking complexes and putting targets down and shooting like that far down. Oh yeah. Like those are the things that I was doing. And you could see a couple of those pictures in my, or clips in my video. I got a lot of arrows laying around West mountain down here. Yeah. And that's what it takes. Like I was taking, (laughs) I was taking like a, one of those round Reinhardt targets. I would go to a cliff and I would chuck it and wherever it landed, that's where I was shooting it. And after, usually after I sight in, I should put this, point this out. After I sight in, I don't shoot at anything that has dots on it. I try to shoot at only 3D when I'm preparing myself for hunts. So anyway, I was totally dialed in for that 2015 hunt. 2016, I drew the tag again. And I actually had more opportunities because I knew how to hunt them better. The first time my buddy was there and I had buddies there and he was a guide for them. So like I had help. Right. The second time I took one of the kids that works for me, actually two of the kids that work for me in my guide service here to be spotters. And we went, I had more opportunities in 2016 than I had in 2015, but I didn't get one. And part of the problem was, is leading up to the hunt, I was maybe 50% of the effort that I put into the first hunt in my practice, I put into the second, maybe not even 50%. 
I was like, I put it a lot into my physicality. Like I was still, you know, hiking and I was in good shape, but I wasn't as well practiced. And there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, even I I shot four times. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, the two that I just told, you know, told the story about earlier, you know, that was a wind thing. Another one where I was trying to shoot through this like window of cedars that I was like, oh, I was convinced that I was going to make it through this hole. No, and I smacked the limb and the freaking arrow went flipping off into God knows where. And the other one, the last one, I just flat out missed. I don't know what I did wrong, but I just flat out missed. Like, I don't even know where the arrow hit, to be honest with you. Just, I don't know if I picked the wrong pin, if I had the wrong angle. I don't know what happened, but I, I just, I missed. No, well, you could have just like did what I did. I told Alan Bowling yesterday, I got on an elk this year down the Bavant and I got this elk at 20 yards, just facing horns. And I'm like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And I'm thinking I got a 40, I start with a 40. So I'm thinking 20 yards, I'm just going to put 40, 10 inches long, kill it. And finally he moved off and I get to the top of the ridge and I seen his cows on the other side of the clearing. I ranged him at 85 and I looked down to my site and it was set on 140. Mm. So that, that'll do normally it. it's set on 100, but I was at, the last time I'd shot, it was at camp at 140 and, and uh, that would not have ended well. And we were in Alaska last year hunting caribou and the, they were talking about a guy they had up there sheep hunting. So this talking a doll sheep hunt, you know, mm-hmm. they, a ball. and they get this guy on a sheep and he 50 yards and he shoots five freaking times. <laughs> shoots a group like that over the top of the sheep before he figures out he ha- he didn't have his sight set on the right. Oh, really? You know, for a, I, a five, I, five or six pin movable, uh, you have to have. I know I know you're a movable guy, man, but Jesus, that's why I'm so anti-moving you know, sight. I, I, shoot, I shoot seven pins on a mover. So I run 40 okay. to 100. Yeah, 40 to 100. And it gives me the option. I shot both my caribou at 66 last year and absolutely both of them. I dialed the site. Mm-hmm. I had time, but I want options. You know, a lot of people are, there's kind of a trend around for single pin movables and, yeah, I, don't and I will give you concessions that it's more accurate standing in your backyard planking. hundred percent, but it's not practical. It's not. I, I shoot a seven pin fixed. That's it. I got, if I can't get within 80 yards of a freaking animal, then I used to, I mean, I, there's a video out there of me, uh, shoot an antelope at 97 and I've, you know, I've killed my fair share over 80, but I just started thinking to myself, I'm like, I need to start just, this is my window, right? I'm going to give myself this structure, even though I'm physically capable of it. I know the bow is capable of it. I know the equipment's going to do it. This is my, this is my limitations. You know, I got 20, my top pin, 80 my last pin yeah okay for 85 i might you know cheat it yeah, whatever I, but i can't do that but i watch a buck come up out of a coolie on my buddy it stops at 92 and he's up there fumbling at his sight and i'm thinking i got an 80 yard pin what would i be doing yeah and i'd be doing the same thing he was doing so the next year i put a 90 in mm-hmm. and i'll be danged if i didn't have to use it but it was on a second shot yeah i had put one in the shoulder because i was rushing and and i had an opportunity at just almost at 92 and then I had an opportunity at 96 and drained him, you know? Yeah. And I thought the reason I killed that thing was cause I put that 90 yard pin in there. Yeah. You know? Well, I'm I, not that I wouldn't have killed him anyway, but. But still, uh-oh. I know what you're saying, man. I, and I get it. And I'm, I'm not against it. I'm not one of those guys that say, Hey, that's unethical or whatever. Cause I don't, mm-hmm. I don't believe that. I believe it's unethical if you weren't Tim Gillingham and you didn't practice that shit. You know what I'm saying? Like if you didn't right. take the time and the effort, even, I know what you put into what you do. So it's like, like, it's like tournaments. Even if, if I go out here and I'm shooting unmarked 3d, for example, and I have spent two rounds per day for two straight weeks before I go to a tournament mm-hmm. and I'm just killing it. And I know it, I go to that tournament expecting to win. Right. If I go out there and I haven't shot a round in one round in two weeks, I go to that tournament with a lot of trepidation. Yeah, you're going there hoping to win. <laughs> and I'm stressing out and I'm, yeah, and you're going there like exactly, you're going open to win. So, and it, it from a mental psyche, it just, it, it, it's massive. You know, mm. it, I remember one year hunting mule deer up here on the front and I was chasing this big buck all freaking day. I mean, he was a stud, 200 inch deer, mm. 195, 200 inch deer. And Finally, I pop over this little, and it's just oak brush infested, super hard to get a shot. And I pop over this little ridge and boom, there's this buck following a doe. And I, and, and in my mind, it was him. 
I clicked in with the rangefinder, said 82. And I just remember the thought process in my mind. It was like, that thing might as well have been 20. Mm-hmm. You know, he was so dead. And it just, I just center punched him. And I get up to him. And I'm like, what freaking deer is this? Yep. It was a different deer. It was a big frame deer. It was a nice deer. I would have still shot him, but it was not. I just thought I'd killed that stomper. And he'd given me the slip somewhere. Yeah. I, I've done that more than a few times. We talked to a guy this year that shot a, ma- a mountain I, in BC like that. And he said the guide told him there was two goats and one was just a slob, like mm-hmm. 54 inches. I mean, just wow. a monster, maybe world record. And they just, the wrong one stood up at the wrong time and they were pretty sick about it, but they still killed a nice goat. It was still a 47, 48 inch goat, but yeah. Compared no. to a 54. Whew. No, I I've done that. Unfortunately, so many times that cause, and I think a lot of guys that have consistent success, will do that because if, at least for me, this is what I know the mechanism that causes that is that as soon as I go into kill mode, everything else disappears. All I yeah. see is where I need to shoot. And I mean, the two times that stick out to me, the most matter of fact, it was also Utah. And it, I have this on film. It's on my YouTube if you guys want to see it. But I was sitting on this buck from like noon. And I think it might've been like 7 PM by the time they finally got up and they got out and there was three bucks together. There was a really big one, a medium sized one and a small one. And, you know, the big buck was in the lead the whole time. And then I couldn't see him. They came around this, like the, the roll of the mountain was so steep that I was only going to be able to see him when, when they popped out right in front of me at like 40, 50 yards. And, um, I could see tips of antlers coming. So I drew back. I didn't want to get busted drawing back. So I drew back and it's, and it stepped out. And when it stepped out, it was, there was a medium sized buck. And I shot him. I drilled him. He ran like 20 yards and then tumbled down the mountain for like 200 yards. It was terrible pack out. But when I got up to him, I'm like, this is not the buck that I was trying to kill, you know? And then the other time that sticks out with me most was I was hunting. I was in Illinois. I was tree stand hunting. And this doe's coming down this trail. And she's got this freaking giant buck, probably like. 170 beautiful 10 point following her and behind him was like a 130 something you know buck decent buck nice buck and he actually had some cool character and stuff he was a cool buck but they were running and they were chasing around and they ran up to my right where i couldn't shoot because there was a bunch of brush and they ran behind my stand and they were running behind me i hit my can call a couple times and the doe comes flying around the trail that comes down my left and she runs and she stops. So where she stops, I drew back because I knew, you know, in the rut, that's exactly what happens. They stop in a spot and the buck goes there and smells that spot. And then, you know, so she t- starts taking off again. Here comes the buck. He stops in the same spot. Boom. Drilled him. <laughs> Literally drops like right there. I hit him so good. And I'm like, I'm like, that's not the right buck. And I look over and the other buck's looking up at me in the tree stand going like, Got you, <laughs> you know, and I'm uh, like, I can't believe it. I mean, I was so. It's funny, you're right. I was you do, you just, <laughs> I get the same way. Is just once you decide to make that shot. I shot in 2009. I had drew the expo tag, and I had a, a elk tag down on the the boulder, and I got on these elk, and I, I I got in pretty close, and I it was the second day, and I had a cow at like 22 yards. And I could hear the bull. I could kind of see him a frame through the trees, but I, you know, I, I couldn't tell you if he was 330, 360, through what, you know, mm-hmm. broken off on six times. I <laughs> I remember he turned around and he was coming, and my mind's just scoping, where am I going to get a shot? And I saw just a royal that was pretty good with some knobbiness to it. And I just went to this opening. And as soon as his leg went forward in the opening, I hammered the trigger mm-hmm. and my first thought was like, oh, shit, I have no idea what I just shot. But that was one of them bulls that, you know, when I got closer and closer and closer. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. You know, he was 60-inch main beams, 360 bull. Just a beautiful bull. Oh, awesome. I just everything I could have wanted, you know. I mean, 
Um, but uh, that buck right there, matter of fact, that one that's up there, that's a wrong buck. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, there was a buck bedded, and I stalked all the way over to it, and I came over the top, and I made a shot, fifty-five yards, killed him, dropped him in his tracks, and uh, I get over to it. I'm like, this is not the buck that I was going after. I mean, it's a good buck, and it was pretty close, but the one that I went after was definitively a four by four and probably about three inches wider. And this is a three by four. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, I, I, you know, I was talking to Alan yesterday and he's just obsessed with killing Boone and Crockett and he, and he, he's willing to pass them up, but he's killed. He's a good hunter, man. He's just one of them obsessed guys. He's really like into the equipment, into the shooting, mm-hmm. into learning, you know, but, you know, willing to go home with nothing in order to kill big animals and, you know, that to each his own, you know, it's like, that's the challenge. You know, some people want that extra challenge. I mean, when we grew up, we grew up, it was about meat, right. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, that's all we ate as kids, you know, and, you know, but it, it, it grows with you, you know, you want the challenge. I'm a competitive person. I mean, I want the challenge, but I also want the experience, you know, but I also want the experience for like my nephews. And one of the, you know, the next thing we want to talk about a little bit is how do we bring this to the next generation? It becomes increasingly more challenging to get young people and new people into bow hunting. It seems like the resources are less and less and everybody's so busy and it's just so hard to get families to hunt together with, with the limited amount of tags and, and things that are available. And give us a little your thoughts on that. I know you've been involved a little bit on some education in this regard. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think, well, let me, let me, let me preface this with a story. So uh, a few years ago, it was 2016. I was really advocating for our three, and I was, I started an initiative called Hunter Up. And, you know, it was about getting hunters to be uh, better to each other, you know, to start realizing that we're all on the same team, that we're all, you know, uh, we're all working towards the same thing. We may not hunt the same, you know, you might be a rifle hunter, might be a bow hunter, you might be an elk hunter, might be a deer hunter, whatever the case may be. But we're all in the same team. And so I was pushing the, you know, I was advocating for the R3, not necessarily pushing it. Um, and that R3, if people don't know what that is, it's it's a program, nationwide program that gets hunters reactivated, uh, recruits new hunters. So that's part of it. And that was the big part that I was, I was really pushing was the recruiting the new hunters. And I was met with a bunch of opposition and hunters were just like, why do I want to bring in somebody else? I already got no, you know, I got too much competition as it is. Da 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 da. Yeah. You know, there's no places to hunt. Why would I want to bring somebody else into this? And, you know, and I'd have to explain to him like, well, you know, the hunter's voice is getting smaller and smaller. And even if the numbers stay the same, because we're not that far off in how many people hunt today as they did in 1980, you know, within a million or so, but we occupy less of the population. Back in 1980, we were 10%, now we're 5%. You know, so that's that's the big difference there. And, you know, in 1980, I think there was less than 4 billion people in the world, and now there's close to 8 billion people in the world, so we've doubled as a population. So if you bring on somebody new, like, you know, you're talking to a guy at work or whatever, and you take them out hunting, chances are that person is not going to be as sick with it as you are. They didn't grow up with it. They're not going to, you know, to be doing, I don't know how many trips a year you do, but you know, for a long time I was spending 90 days a field. You're not going to get that. You're not going to get that out of, you know, your, your buddy, your buddy at work. So you're not really creating that much competition and chances are he might be that person that, you know, does it for one weekend a year, five days a year, whatever the case may be, you know, takes one tag, but you just created an ally. You just created another voice, another, yep. 
another person to advocate for hunting. So, I, yeah, I think I, I was talking about this with Ted Nugent a little bit because I always had the the idea that you know I run into a lot of people on airplanes and a lot of people. I mean, a large percentage of people, when they find out I shoot archery Mm -hmm. professionally, just think it's cool, right? It's a cool endeavor. And I think, I think we could get a lot of support for the hunting community simply by breaking down the stereotype of what people believe a hunter is, you know, people that aren't familiar, they don't know people that are hunters, but if they know somebody that shoots competitively, I think the competitive shooting sports is a good way to develop allies. Absolutely. They may not necessarily hunt. They like the competition aspect of it, whether it be shotgun, rifle, air sure. rifle, archery, you know, you know, we're running. Those are great ways to get people. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's kind of the same thing. You know, some people think you're crazy for the amount of hunting you do, but you're always going to have in any, any endeavor, you're going to have those people that just take it to the 10th level, you know? Oh yeah. hundred percent. But you also want, you know, I also want my nephews to be able to experience what I've experienced, you know, Mm -hmm. what it's like to be on the top of a mountain at daylight, the smells, you know, the, the glassing up of a velvet mule deer and the excitement that that brings, or, you know, hearing an elk bugle laying in bed and, and just seeing just, just, you you know, all the things that we've seen, you know, it's just hard to impart that to other people, you know, that, that are completely ignorant of it. Yeah, we're actually trying to do that. So I don't know, Tim, if I ever talked to you about this or not, but I'm the vice president of Health and Wildlife. So we're, mm-hmm. we are working primarily on hunting advocacy. We're basically doing, we're educating the hunters on issues and we are giving them the tools to connect with decision makers to voice their opinion in a very easy way. And we're working on this project right now that hunting is human. And one of the big things, we didn't say it yet, but you alluded to it, is there's this perception, there's this idea of what the hunter is, you know, toothless hillbilly, willy nilly, running around the back of pickup trucks, drinking beer and shooting at everything, right? Like that's, that's what is painted of the hunter. Or that or we're just this like bloodthirsty, we're shooting things, lopping off their head, leaving bodies out there. And, right. you know, that's the trophy hunter. You know, I just want right. to stand with my trophy. And that's and that has all came about from the anti-hunting. They've been systematically for since you and before you and I were babies or born, they've been painting this picture of what the hunter is. Right. And you hit the nail on the head when you started saying we need we need to start talking to people and start changing that perception of what it is that we are giving them the truths letting them know that hey wild things and wild places exist primarily because of hunting and the, what we've done not just from a financial standpoint but from all the effort and and stuff that we've put into growing those habitats and growing those animals and it's really on us archers hunters to portray to the non-hunting people that don't know what we are for real and that idea doesn't take much you know having conversations with people at work you know you want to educate yourself first before you start you know talking about things that you don't know about 100% because you don't want to say the wrong thing. But educate yourself and share your human experiences. You know, I bring the meat home, my my family, you should come over. Let's let's have a barbecue. You can have some milk and, you know. It's funny, I was doing financial planning one year and one of the clients was – you know, he was just entertaining me. I was young, you know, and, uh-huh. but he found out as a hunter and he, he wanted me to bring some elk meat because he had, he'd had a friend that was a hunter. And so he cooked us up elk steaks and stuff, but it was a good interaction, you know? Yeah. But, it's all about that. So again, you don't necessarily have to make them hunters, but if you, if your neighbor who never hunts comes over to your house and has, you know, two barbecues a, a year with you and you're eating elk and you're eating deer or whatever, when the ballot comes up or when something comes in front right. of them, now you created an ally. Exactly. So yeah. instead of there being 5% of us, now there's 10 or 15, you know? Well, yeah, there's 80% in the middle, right? Or right. excuse me, 90% in the middle now. 
is five five anti hunting and five percent is is hunting. You know, it, it's reaching that ninety percent in the middle, that middle ground, and having them understand what we are and not to accept the narrative that is being fed to them by the other side. Right. Exactly. So, um, you know, before we, you know, get this video posted, I want to uh, give people some links to where they can find some of these organizations that you're talking about. Some of the links, I mean, you talked about providing links to, to their, I believe their, their congressmen and decision makers Mm -hmm. as to, I think that's what people need. Honestly, they need to know who to call. So, or who to email. Right to get their voice out because that's, you know, people like, well, contact your congressman. Well, most people don't even know who their congressmen are. That's that. You know what it is that they, they don't even know who their congressman is. And that congressman may not have anything to do with the situation that you're talking about. Right. You know, Hey, um, contact your congressman about this, but it's in the commission level. It has nothing to do with the congressman right. or it's in this committee. So what we've done at Howl for Wildlife is actually make it, we get, we, we created the easy button. There were so many obstacles in the way for people to get involved. We try to take all that out of the way. So if you come to the website and you go to our action center and you click on any action, it's going to give you all the information about what's going on so you can educate yourself if you want to. So the, and it's howfulwildlife.org is the, is the website. Um, if you go to the action center and you click on one of the actions, you can read about it. You can educate yourself on the bottom of it. At the end of it, it will ask you for your name. Sometimes it might ask you for your phone number, but it's your name and your email address most of the time. And you click send and it sends a email and it's not a canned email we upload anywhere from like a hundred to two thousand different variations of an email anywhere from a hundred to two thousand variations of a of a subject line and that email randomly goes out to every decision maker on that piece of policy or that piece of legislation that is that we're trying to deal with well, that's good. They get it, it be, and they read it. It's shareable like that. So we can go in and share it to our friends and our contacts. And, mm-hmm. you know, I have 15, 20, 30,000, whatever, you know, or Levi Morgan's got 150,000 people that he can access to. If they make it easy for them mm-hmm. and really give them the steps to do so, I think you're going to have a lot more uh, effect on it. Yeah. Well, let me let me tell you this. So we're the only organization that has a free membership option. Okay. Because we started, when we started this, we didn't want to say, no, you can't, you can't get involved in saving hunting because you don't want to give the organization $30 and become a member. Right. Okay. That's number one. Number two, in, I think we've had, I'd have to go back and double check, but I believe that 89% of the legislation and actions that we've gotten involved in, we've either won or progressed. Oh, wow. Okay. And we've done that. We have about 45,000 members right now, I think, 46,000 members. We've done that with 46,000 people. And we've done that with only approximately 8% of the 46,000 being involved in each well, yeah, at, at, I mean, any perfect, at, any, at any given time, right? Yeah. Okay. Let me give you some other numbers real quick. There's 16 million hunters in the United States alone. Okay. If we had 10% of that 16 million, that's 1.6 million that got involved in every single action, we would never lose another hunting thing ever again. Yeah. I, I agree. I think I think that same thing happens with progressive politics. It's all being run by the person with the loudest mouth, yeah. and that's that's the crazy well, that's, leftist, you know. Well, that's honestly, it's that's politics is it, it, on both sides of the fence that have been that way forever. A right. politician is going to do what's going to make him look the him or her look the best to his constituents. To his constituents. So if he or she believes that his constituents want A, he's going to do A. If he, want, he believes that they want, he want, they want B, he's going to do, she's going to do B. And 
that is why it's important that hunters get involved. Because we've, I've, I mean, I can't tell you how many times already now I've heard, oh, you want us to be activists? That's for libtards. Okay. So you let the quote unquote libtards be active, let their mouths, let them be the squeaky wheel. And guess what? Sooner or later, you have nothing. Yeah, exactly. I've had people tell me that about, you know, well, I don't, I don't get into politics. Well, if you don't get into politics, politics is going to get into you. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. They're going like, to own you. You need to be, so, you need to be active. You need to be involved because if well, you're not involved, it's going to go away. Like, yeah. People felt like they've lost their voice. And I think this is, this is good to hear that you, you put something together that people start to feel like maybe they can make a difference because I, I do believe that's the big kicker there. They got to feel like they're actually making a difference. And, so. and, and we are, and they can yep. see it. And that's one of the beauties so of our, our how, Yeah. So how for wildlife is your organization? You know, I encourage you guys to go over and look at this. We're going to wrap up here. Uh, we've hit about an hour time frame. Um, if you want any technical information we talked about, you know, look at gold tips, YouTube channel. We've got a lot of stuff up on our YouTube channel. All these, uh, uh, archery ops podcast or on our youtube channel there's hammers hacks that go along with that some of those hammers hacks i was going to kind of mention you know one of the things that i do to to set my grip on my bow when we talked about shooting slopes and stuff is is a little o-ring under a piece of duct tape one of those hammers hacks is about that subject so mm -hmm. if you want to look at what we're talking about uh you know feel free to go over to gold tips youtube channel and check that out thanks for having me yeah thanks john Hey guys, thanks for checking out the show. Really appreciate you. Keep those reviews and those comments coming. Helps us keep this free. Do me a favor, go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags. Use promo code John Stallone to save 20%, all one word. And check out Howl for Wildlife. Thank you very much and we'll catch you on the next show.